Father, we thank you for the great encouragement that you've given us um, through the songs that we have sung. Lord, we thank you for how um, even technical difficulties often uh, is just the, the change-up we need to begin to really focus on what, what the words are saying. And that last song in particular, uh, Before the Throne of God Above, we have a strong and perfect plea. Your word tells us that, that Jesus is our righteousness. Uh, he is the one who has made us acceptable to you. Your word says that through faith we have been united together with him. We are hidden in him and clothed with his righteousness. And so when we are afflicted by doubts and fears and guilt, uh, all we have to do is ask ourselves, is Jesus in heaven? Is he accepted by the Father? And if he is, then I am too through faith in him. And that puts our fears to rest. So Lord, we thank you that Jesus is even now seated at, at your right hand. He is the surety of our salvation. Lord, we have a, a firm rock upon which to stand. Uh, our salvation doesn't rest on the shifting sands of our deeds. Um, it, it stands on the solid rock of, of his accomplishment. And Lord, as we wor work our way through the book of Galatians, we are going to be reminded of that wonderful truth over and over again. And I just pray that you would give us hearts uh, that would just stand beneath uh, the flood of that truth week by week, that it would nourish our souls and just boost our assurance every time we come and, and meditate on the glorious gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, turn with me to the book of Galatians. Last week we did an overview of that letter, and this week we're going to begin working our way through it. So turn to Galatians chapter 1. We live in a time of cell phones and computers where we can call someone who lives very far away or we can write an electronic letter, hit send, and instantly it gets to the person we are sending it to. And we don't have to worry about whether or not the message will get lost in translation. You know, we don't have to worry about someone uh, passing that message along and messing it up. That's the great convenience that we have in our day and age. Well, the Lord Jesus, he did not come in the 21st century, right? He came in the first century, and he did not distribute his saving message via cell phone or email, but he distributed it through messengers that would take his message and deliver it, either by speaking it or by writing it on actual uh, physical letters made of parchment or animal skin. And they would carry it, whether by land or by sea. And because of this mode of communication, it was relatively easy for someone to come along and cast doubt upon the message that the middleman had carried, the, the, the messenger had delivered. And this sort of thing is apparently what happened in Galatia. Paul, as we saw last week, had planted churches throughout the province of Galatia by delivering that very gospel message that Jesus Christ had entrusted to him. But once he left, others came in behind him, false teachers. We were introduced to them last week, and they cast doubt 
upon the message that Paul, the messenger, had brought. They said that his gospel message was an error. They said that it wasn't enough to simply believe in Jesus for salvation. They said you also needed to be circumcised and you needed to follow everything that the law of Moses said in order to be saved. And these Galatians that Paul had ministered to had begun to fall for that lie. They were in danger of losing the gospel that Paul had faithfully entrusted and declared to them. So when Paul is writing this letter, do you think uh, he's kind of ho-hum about it? No, as we'll see, he's very worked up. He is, he is writing with a great deal of urgency because there is much at stake for these believers. And today, here in the 21st century, we too are regularly bombarded with competing messages that cast doubt upon the gospel that we believe. People come, they say, well, the gospel's really this. Or they'll say, you can't really trust what you have in the Bible. We're constantly being bombarded by that sort of thing. So we, like the Galatians, we never get over our need to be reminded of the true gospel and to be encouraged by the truthfulness of that gospel. And that's what I hope and pray will be accomplished through the, the sermon today, that we'll be reminded of how true the gospel is and we'll be encouraged by the evident truthfulness of that gospel that we have believed in. So toward that end, we're first going to consider the messenger of the gospel. The messenger of the gospel. We'll see that in verses 1 through 2. Uh, let's, let's begin working our way through this, this passage. I'm going to read it once all the way through, and then I'll read verse 1 all over again. So we're looking at Galatians 1, verses 1 through 5. Let me read the whole thing. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brethren who are with me, to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins, so that he might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever Amen. Now let me read verse 1 again. We are considering the messenger of the gospel. Verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Like any typical letter, the writer introduces himself, and that's what Paul does. He identifies himself by name. The Galatians know who he is because he has spent time with them. And he identifies himself by his office. He says, Paul, an apostle. Apostle, as you probably already know, simply means a sent one. They were messengers. It means sent one. And the Bible uses that word apostle or apostolos, in a few different senses. For example, in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1, it says this, the apostle and high priest of our confession, Jesus. Jesus is called apostle. That is his title in Hebrews chapter 3, verse 1. And when you think about it, that's a very appropriate title for Jesus because who was Jesus? He was 
the one sent, right? Sent by God the Father. And in fact, when you read through the Gospel of John, over and over again, Jesus refers to himself as having been sent. And that verb for sent is apostello, like apostle, sent. And that's one way in which this, this word is used. It's a title for Christ. It's used in another way, a general way. Apostle is used in a general sense. Uh, for example, uh, turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 8. It's only a couple pages before Galatians. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we see this general sense of the word apostle. Here, Paul is talking about a couple of believers who are being sent by churches to accompany a financial offering. They're going along with a financial offering that has been collected among the churches to bring to the struggling church in Jerusalem. And these individuals are being sent for that purpose. Look at verse 23. Paul says, As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, and he's just talked about two brethren who are being sent, they are messengers. And the word there is apostolos. They're apostles, messengers of the churches, a glory to Christ. They are sent by churches and they are called apostles or messengers. You could say that they're little a apostles. That's the general use of this word. Anytime someone is sent, they can be described by that Greek word, apostolos, apostle, sent one, messenger. But there's a more technical and restricted usage of this word, which we find applied, of course, to the 12 disciples who walked with Jesus throughout his ministry, who were eyewitnesses to his resurrection. And we could refer to these folks as big A apostles. Uh, let me read to you Mark chapter 3. And verse 14, Mark 3, verse 14. And he appointed 12, whom he also named apostles, to be with him and to send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. So these, these men were sent by Jesus to carry his message. So you could say they were messengers. And of course, Judas, who was one of the twelve, he ended up betraying Jesus, and he committed suicide. And in the book of Acts, chapter 1, we find that he is replaced by a man named Matthias, who would fill that role as a big A apostle, carrying Christ's message. These twelve were the official messengers of the Lord Jesus to bear his message of salvation. Now, apostles in this technical and more restricted sense have four key characteristics. And if you want uh, to write it down, I'll try to go slow through these. Apostles have four key characteristics in this technical sense. First, these big A apostles were directly commissioned by Christ to the work of the ministry. They were directly commissioned or set apart by Jesus to do the work of the ministry he was calling them to do. In other words, mere men did not make these big A apostles apostles. Christ himself did, directly. Even in the case of Matthias, the other apostles, 
did not gather together and vote on who was going to replace Judas, right? They put forward a couple men who had been with Jesus that whole time of his ministry, and what did they do? They cast lots, right? And the lot fell to Matthias. So it was God in his providence appointing Matthias. It was not men appointing Matthias. It was God by lot appointing Matthias to be an apostle. And we also have uh, another individual in addition to the 12 who was appointed personally by Jesus as apostle. And that was, of course, Paul. You read in Acts chapter 9 where Jesus appears to Paul, knocks him down, and sets him apart as an apostle. So that's the first characteristic. They are personally, directly appointed to the office by the Lord. The second characteristic of these big A apostles is this. They have seen the resurrected Christ. They have seen the resurrected Christ. In 1 Corinthians 9 and verse 1, Paul asks, Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? So that's the second key. They have seen the resurrected Christ. The third characteristic of a big A apostle is that they were responsible for doing the groundbreaking work of establishing churches. They were the establishers of the church. And how did they do that? They did that by inerrantly proclaiming the one true gospel. In that same verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 9, verse 1, Paul then asks, Are you, the Corinthians, not my work in the Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2, where we continue to see this third characteristic. Ephesians chapter 2. Starting in verse 19, Paul there says, So then, you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and are of God's household, which is another description of the church. Notice what he says in verse 20, Having been built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the apostles, they were foundational to the establishment of the church. Jesus sent them for that purpose. So that's the third characteristic. The fourth one, the last one that I'll talk about that characterizes big A apostles is that they were authorized by Christ to perform miraculous signs. Uh, For example, let's go back to the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. Luke chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. And he, Jesus, called the twelve, that's the twelve apostles, together and gave them power and authority over all the demons and to heal diseases. And he sent them, there's that, that sending language, he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. Now jump over to 2 Corinthians 12. If your finger is still in Galatians, it's just a couple pages right before that. 2 Corinthians 12 
and verse 12. What does Paul say to these believers? 2 Corinthians 12, verse 12, he says, The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So that, that's what a big A apostle was characterized by. And there aren't too many of those. There haven't been any of those ever since John died. Now, Paul was an apostle in this technical and restricted sense. He was on a level with the other 12 apostles. He was not a lower class apostle. He was not a little a apostle. He was a big a apostle. But apparently his apostleship had been called into question by these false teachers who had infiltrated the Galatian churches. And that seems apparent. It's not spelled out for us in the letter here that that was the case. But from what Paul says next, you get the sense that these false teachers were calling into question his apostleship. Because Paul doesn't just say, hey, I'm writing to you, Paul an apostle. No, he goes on. He says a lot more about his apostleship. Back in Galatians chapter 1, verse 1, what does he go on to say? Paul an apostle, not sent from men, nor through the agency of man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead. He's saying there was no council that voted him into the office of apostle, nor was there a man sent by a council to appoint him as an apostle. No, Paul was made an apostle directly by Jesus Christ and God the Father. There was no middleman. We saw in 2 Corinthians 8, those, those brothers who were sent by the churches, they were appointed messengers by, by other men, right? That's not the case with Paul or any of the other apostles, big A apostles. Jesus, whom God had raised from the dead, came to Paul on that road to Damascus and made him an apostle. Now, you might say, wait a minute, Jesus is a man. So how can Paul say that he did not receive his apostleship from men or through men? Well, because, of course, Jesus is not only a man, right? Who else is he? He is God. He is God. Notice in this passage of chapter 1 how closely Paul ties together Jesus Christ and God the Father. He places them on the same level, doesn't he? He says that his apostleship came directly from both of them, from Jesus and the Father. Then in verse 3, he says that grace and peace comes from both of them, Jesus and the Father. Here, Paul is taking for granted that Jesus is God. Now, Paul, as we see, as we work our way through this letter, he's going to spend the rest of this chapter and the next chapter defending his apostleship against this apparently false charge that he wasn't really a big A apostle. Now, why is he taking time to do this? Why spend two chapters defending his office as an apostle? Is he just proud? Is he just irritated that somebody has downgraded him in the eyes of these churches? Is he just trying to make a name for himself and keep a name for himself? No, pride has nothing to do with it. Paul is defending his apostleship 
because the gospel is at stake. That's why he's doing it. What were the apostles entrusted with? They were entrusted with the glorious gospel of Jesus Christ. Turn with me to Romans chapter 1, where we see this. Romans chapter 1, and we're looking at the first six verses. Paul, a bondservant of Christ Jesus, called as an apostle, for what purpose? Set apart for the gospel of God, which he promised beforehand through his prophets in the Holy Scriptures, concerning his son, who was born of a descendant of David, according to the flesh, who was declared the son of God with power by the resurrection from the dead, according to the spirit of holiness, Jesus Christ our Lord, through whom we have received grace and apostleship to do what? To bring about the obedience of faith among all the Gentiles for his namesake, among whom you also are the called of Jesus Christ. Next, uh, let's go to Ephesians chapter 3, the next book over from Galatians. Ephesians chapter 3. Verse 1, Paul says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace which was given to me for you, so as an apostle he was given a stewardship of the grace of God for the benefit of the Gentiles who would become part of the church. Verse 3, That by revelation there was made known to me the mystery the mystery of the gospel, that Gentiles could be saved and brought into the church. As I wrote before in brief, verse 4, by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to who? To his holy apostles and prophets in the Spirit. To be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel, of which I was made a minister. Paul keeps harping on this. He wasn't made an apostle just to be able to do crazy stuff and impress people. No, he was made an apostle to bring the gospel, the pure, undiluted gospel to people so that they would be saved. He was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me, he keeps saying that over and over again, according to the working of his power. Verse 8, to me, the very least of all saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and to bring to light what is the administration of the mystery, which for ages has been hidden in God who created all things, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and the authorities in the heavenly places. Paul's apostleship was directly tied to the gospel he proclaimed. To cast doubt on Paul's apostleship was to cast doubt upon what? The gospel that he preached, right? To say that Paul was not directly sent by Jesus was to say that he might be wrong about the gospel he preached in Jesus' name. 
That's why he's spending time in this verse and through the next two chapters to show no man sent him. He was sent by Jesus. Let's go to verse 2 of chapter 1. He continues on. He says, it's not just him writing. Verse 2, and all the brethren who are with me to the churches of Galatia. We saw last week that this letter is addressed not to one church in one city, but to multiple churches in multiple cities throughout the Roman province of Galatia. So Galatians was likely a circular letter. letter. That means it was a letter, one letter, that would get circulated around the churches in that area. So one church would get it, they would read it, they would pass it along to the next church. Now Paul, he says here in verse 2 that he's not the only one sending this letter. He says that all the brothers who are with him are sending it to the churches of Galatia as well. Now, when you read Paul's other letters to the churches, uh, like Romans, 1st, 2nd Corinthians, 1st and 2nd Thessalonians, Colossians, Philippians, Ephesians, in some of those letters he mentions one or two other co-senders, like Timothy, for example. This is the only one where he refers to a whole group of people who are sending this letter with him. Now, why might he do this? Well, he might be wanting to make it apparent to these Galatian believers that he's not some lone ranger tooting his own horn, just saying he's an apostle with no one else supporting that claim. Nor is he some eccentric, wild-eyed cult leader who just drifted in and who made up his own gospel message to try to gain a following. No, the gospel that he is defending is affirmed by all the brethren who are with him. So he's not some deviant who came along with some uh, tailor-made gospel that he did work on himself. No, this gospel that he has proclaimed already to the Galatians and that he's defending here is the very same gospel that all the brethren with him have been saved by, are believing and proclaiming. So it's not some off-the-wall message that he brought to them. No, this... This is true. The deviants are the false teachers who have come in saying that the gospel is something else. Now, how should what Paul has said in these first two verses impact us here and now? I mean, we're all the way on the other side of the world. We're 2,000 years removed from the time that Paul wrote this letter. What relevance could this possibly have for us here and now? Well, one thing that occurred to me is this. Even though we're on the other side of the world, even though we live in in 2023, it is just as relevant to us today as it was to them. Because what is Paul telling these believers? He's saying that you don't need to wonder about whether or not the gospel I preached to you was true. And it has that same relevance for us. You and I don't need to wonder or worry about whether or not the gospel that we read about in this book is true. We don't need to worry about that. And that's something we need to hear again and again. There's only one gospel, right, that saves. Only one gospel that saves. And that one gospel is the gospel Paul preached to this people. And the record of that one saving gospel has been preserved for us 
here in the letter to the Galatians. And not only here, but in the other 65 books of the Bible as well. Just to help tie this together, how many books are in the New Testament? Anybody remember? 27, yes, Eric, you were very brave going right out there with that number. 27, I had to look it up, I couldn't remember. And of all those 27 books, how many of those books were not written by either an apostle or a close associate of an apostle who was under the oversight of of an apostle? None. None of them. None of them. Later Christian writings are not considered sacred scripture because they don't meet that criteria. They're too far removed from the ones who were directly sent by Jesus to deliver the message. Our Lord Jesus made sure that the gospel message he sent his apostles to preach was preserved in writing for us. We don't have this telephone game having been played where we're reliant on the last person who got the message to have accurately conveyed it to us from not only the person who told it to him, but the thousandth generation up from, from the guy who originally delivered the message, right? You've played the game. You sit in a circle. You think up one, one sentence to say. You whisper it to the next person, and then that person turns to the other and whispers that. And by the end, by the end of the chain, how closely does that message line up with the original? Not too close, right? It's all jumbled up. It's confused. It doesn't make sense anymore. The gospel that Paul was sent as an apostle to preach was not a message that had been passed on to him through the hands of other men, and he unfortunately bungled the message when he got to Galatia. That's not what happened. No, Paul received it directly from Jesus Christ. And Jesus did not stutter when he entrusted it to Paul. This was not some zany message that no one else had ever heard before. No, all the brethren who are with Paul have been saved by this message, are believing this message, and proclaiming this same message. And that's what he's going to prove through these next chapters, that he wasn't sent by men, This gospel was given to him by Jesus, and that gospel matches up with the gospel message that every other one of the big A apostles were preaching. That's what he's going to show. So we need to consider the messenger of the gospel when we're thinking about, can I trust what I've been taught? Can I trust what I read in this book? The second thing to consider is not just the messenger, but the message of the gospel. And we'll see this in verses 3 through 5. So now that Paul has identified himself and the brothers and sisters with him as the senders of this letter, he greets these believers by praying for them. Verse 3, he says, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We're familiar with that greeting, right? Grace to you and peace. It's the greeting that Paul gives in all of his letters to the churches, and it's not a throwaway greeting for him. It always has great significance. Martin Luther, in his commentary on Galatians, and you're going to hear a lot of Martin Luther as we work through this letter, 
But this is what he says about this greeting. He says, quote, grace and peace, these two words embrace the whole of Christianity. Grace forgives sin. Peace stills the conscience. The two devils who plague us are sin and conscience, the power of the law and the sting of sin. But Christ has conquered these two monsters and trodden them underfoot, both in this age and in the age to come, unquote. So Paul, that this greeting that he always prefaces his letters with is a reminder of that great gospel truth that our sins have been forgiven and we have been brought into a relationship of peace with God. And though this phrase, grace and peace, has great meaning in every letter that Paul writes, nowhere is it more significant than here in this letter to the Galatians. Why is that? It's because grace and peace are the very things at stake in this letter. The Galatians are in danger of forsaking the very gospel that secures for them this grace and this peace that come from God our Father and the Lord Jesus. And Paul, he's going to get right to the heart of the matter. Because in verse 4, what does he, what does he proclaim? The gospel, right, that gives us this grace and peace. Look at verse 4. So grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who, verse 4, gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So what's grace again? Anybody have a definition of grace? Yep, yep, another definition, unmerited favor. And what's peace? Think back to the Old Testament, shalom, the Hebrew word for peace. It has the idea of completeness. Well, for us as believers, peace, it refers to a whole and restored relationship with God. That's grace and that's peace. Now, who are we before we know Jesus? We are sinners. And what do we deserve from God? Do we deserve grace? No, that's why grace is grace. It's unmerited. What do we deserve, though? Wrath, right? Do we deserve to be at peace with God? No, we are what of God before we know Christ? Enemies, right? We are enemies. So how is it that grace and peace can come to us at all? Well, it's because Jesus Christ has done what? given himself for our sins. So Jesus, who is Lord and Messiah, who is altogether righteous, Jesus, who deserves to have everything good and beautiful given to him, this Jesus gave himself. And what did he give himself for, according to verse 4? For our sins. Where does that language come from? Jesus gave himself for our sins. Let's go back to Isaiah 53. The language of Jesus giving himself for our sins. That comes from Isaiah 53. And we'll just look at one verse. Verse 5. This is speaking of the Messiah, Jesus. But he was pierced through, and what's the next word? 
for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. So what, what, what does that sentence mean, that Jesus gave himself for our sins? What is the idea there? It's substitution, right? Substitution. He took our place so that he might suffer the penalty our sins deserve instead of us. And we know that that sacrifice of Christ was accepted by God the Father. How do we know that? Because he rose from the dead. And because of what Jesus has done, the moment that you and I turned from sin and trusted in Jesus to be our Lord and Savior, what happened? Grace and peace flooded into our lives. That's the only way grace and peace came into our lives, through what Jesus did for us. We received it through faith in Jesus Christ. So can you get grace and peace apart from the gospel? No, you cannot. Apart from the gospel, apart from faith in Christ, we are cut off from grace and peace. And we remain under the wrath of God, and we remain in a state of enmity with God. And that's what Paul will say later in Galatians chapter 5. If you look over at chapter 5, verse 4, the, the strong warning he gives. <clears throat> he tells them what's going to happen if they put themselves under the law rather than completely under the grace of God. He says, you have been severed from Christ. You who are seeking to be justified by law. You have fallen from what? Grace. For we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. There is no grace, there is no peace, apart from believing in the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now back to chapter 1. Why did Jesus give himself for our sins? What is the purpose that, that Paul lays out there in verse 4? that he might rescue us from this present evil age. What's, what does that mean, this present age? Well, it's the age before Christ returns to set up his kingdom, to usher in the new age, the coming age. So even after 2,000 years from when Paul wrote this letter, we're still living in that age, right? Because Christ hasn't come back yet. He hasn't ushered in that, that coming age. We're still in this present age that Paul was writing about. And how does Paul characterize this age? It's what kind of age is it? Evil. This present evil age. Uh, let's, let's jump back just a few pages to 2 Corinthians again, chapter 4. And we're looking at verse 3. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 3. The word for age that Paul said, it's, it's the word ion. You can think of our English word eon. That same word pops up here. Verse 3, Paul says, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world, or the God of this ion, this age, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, so that they might not see the light of the gospel 
of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan is described as the God of this age, little g God. Just as there are little a apostles, Satan is not a big g God, he's a little g God. God, the one true God, he's the big G God, right? He's the one sovereign over all. Paul is not denying that God is sovereign even over this present age, but he's saying who's the one who has sway in this present age? Satan, right? It's an evil age ruled by the devil himself. And it is something, because it is evil, because it is ruled by the evil one, this is an age that we need to be what from? rescued from, which is why Jesus came, right? To, to rescue us from this present evil age. And he's the only one who has done what is necessary to do that for us. Through his sacrifice, through faith in him, Jesus has given us eternal life. So that when he returns to destroy this present evil age and to usher in the coming age, he will not destroy us along with it. Instead, he'll bring us into the enjoyment of his kingdom. So we're, we're looking forward to that rescue, right? But we are also experiencing in part that rescue now. Turn with me to Titus. Titus chapter 2. There's an already but not yet aspect to our salvation. There's much yet to come, but we're already now enjoying many aspects of our salvation. Titus 2, verse 11. Paul again, he, he writes, he says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in what? The present age, same phrase, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus, who gave himself, there's that language again, gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Now, before coming to faith in Jesus, we were enslaved to our sins. We were under the rule of Satan, who is described as the God of this age. But now, now that grace has flooded our lives through Christ, we have been freed from our slavery to sin. We've been brought out from under the thumb of Satan. And we're now free, as it says in Titus, to do what? We're free now to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in this present age as we wait for that coming age. Now back in Galatians chapter 1 and verse 4, this gospel that, that Paul has just laid out for us in one verse, it's according to what? It's according to the will of our God and Father. So this is something that our gracious Father has planned. He planned it from before the foundation of the world. Jesus didn't come to try to cajole his father into accepting us. No, his father sent him to do this for us. And he's planned it for our good and for his glory. And that's what Paul says in verse 5, right? End of the passage. He says, to whom, 
Who is he referring to? God the Father. To whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. And that it literally says this. To whom be the glory unto the ages of the ages. We just saw we're living in what? The present evil age? Well, there are ages of ages to come. And in that time, God will receive all glory, right? So this, this present evil age, who's being exalted in this present evil age? The devil, man, right? They are who is being exalted in this present evil age. But this present evil age will soon give way to not just a limited time period, but to an unfathomable indescribable, unending period of time, ages of ages yet to come, where who will be glorified? God and God only, right? Now remember this, what, what, what is the little wrinkle that the false teachers added to the gospel? Works, works. Can somebody quote Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 right on the spot? Eric, yeah, go ahead. And what's the, what was the last phrase there? Lest any man should boast, right? For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. So when you add works to the gospel, what happens? What can man do? boast. And if man can boast, in the ages of the ages to come, who will be receiving glory? Man, right? Man will be receiving glory. You give yourself grounds for boasting, and you steal glory from God. Instead of the glory going to God forever, the glory goes to you forever. So the gospel of works that these false teachers were bringing in is not the gospel of God and of his Christ. It is the devil's gospel. Any gospel message that exalts man rather than God is satanic. The gospel of grace is the true gospel. And that gospel will result in God alone receiving all glory and honor forever and ever. And that's the state of affairs when you go to Revelation and you read about what kind of worship is taking place in heaven? You can write down uh, Revelation. Did I write it down here? But just read through chapters 4 and 5 and you'll find it. God and the Lamb are the only ones being worshipped in heaven. Not man. Not man. So that God-glorifying aspect of the gospel that Paul preached is a mark of its authenticity, isn't it? That's one way we can know that the gospel Paul preached is the right gospel and that the gospel the false teachers were preaching is not a saving gospel. Now have you, sitting in the pew today, have you believed in that gospel, the gospel of grace, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for our sins that he might rescue us from this present evil age? If you have not, then you are still enslaved to your sins. You are still under the thumb of the devil. 
And when Christ comes to destroy this present evil age, he will destroy you as well. He will sweep it all into the lake of fire. And I don't want that for you. You don't have to be shut up to that destiny because Jesus stands and he offers salvation to whoever will believe in him. And the moment you turn from your sins and you, you trust in Jesus to be your Savior and Lord, what floods into your life? Grace and peace. And you are rescued from what? This present evil age. And you are promised an inheritance where? In the coming age. The Bible says in Romans chapter 10, verse 13, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's a promise. And God, who cannot lie, never breaks his promises. And if you'd like to talk with someone about how to receive salvation from Jesus, I'll be here after the service. You can go to Mr. Owen, you can go to Mr. Barney, and we would love to talk with you about your soul. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that uh, the good news has been faithfully transmitted to us. You do not leave us in doubt as to whether or not that is the case. Lord, you directly gave this message to your, your apostles, and you had them and their close associates write it down for us. And then you had thousands of copies made, and you have preserved your word for us. Lord, we thank you that we have this, this book, this, this uh, inerrant, all-sufficient word of God that we can be made wise unto salvation from. And Lord, we, we pray that you would just strengthen our faith in you and your gospel, and that anybody here who doesn't know you yet, may you bring them to faith. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.